Hi, this is Jay Todd Anderson, and you are listening to an archival episode of Filmically Perfect. We are now about to land in the world-famous city of Los Angeles. Its name, translated from the ancient Spanish, means City of the Angels. It is also the home of the American motion picture industry. The city is of night. The chance of death. 20,000 people arrive here to settle every week. They leave all hope behind who enter here. (coughs) One certitude. While sane, they cannot leave. One anodyne for torture and despair. The certitude of death. There, there, I'll get it then. Would you look after my little girl? Please, just for a moment. But, uh, uh madam. Oh, sh- 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 sh. No, that's all right, that's all right, that's all right. Mama, be right back, Mama, be right back. Mama, be right back. Kindly fasten your seatbelts and refrain from smoking, please. Could you... Here, sit, sit down. And you just might want to keep those seatbelts Fastened because film will be perfect about to take off on 91.3 WYSO. I'm Nikki Dakota, your host, joined in the studio today by the largest frame brain on the planet and the nitrate film archivist from the Library of Congress. Plus, he's a sweetheart. He's George Willem and George, welcome. That's about the only time you would hear this song and realize that it's actually like a big kick in the ribs. <laughs> Also, on your radio left, joining us live and in person, the storyboard artist for the Cohen Brothers for the last, we're just going to say, years and counting. Yeah, and I'm, he's I'm still getting <laughs> Also, friend to all the big stars, our friend and the other half of our Film Guy team. He's J. Todd Anderson. J. Todd, welcome. And I am lucky enough to say that I met one of the actors from this film when he was reading for The Big Lebowski, and that would be Rod Steiger. Rod Steiger, who who was in On the Waterfront and so many things in between and the difference and between those two anything. characters. Yeah. I mean, just the character he plays here and, and how he started out shows you that the man has a full palette to choose and from. And what on earth movie could we be talking about, George? We're talking about Tony Richardson's black, 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 black. comedy from 1965, The Loved One or The Loved One. Depending upon Depending whether or not you're, you're British, maybe. Yes, rather. <laughs> this was his follow-up to Tom Jones, which was a huge international hit. This is what happens when that silent gag of the fountain pen exploding all over everybody <laughs> becomes a feature-length movie. <laughs> <Length> movie. <laughs> <laughs> and this film, when it came out, it on, and I have an original poster at home for this, it, it says right on it, the movie with something to offend everyone. Well, and, it does. Too. And it leads up to it. Yes. And the stars in this movie, Robert Morris, Jonathan Winters. Dane Andrews, Milton Berle. A lot of these are, are cameos. And Jeanette Comer. Uh, Robert Morley, Rodney McDowell. John Gilgood, Tab Hunter. Lionel Stander. Liberace. <laughs> Liberace's great in Roddy this. McMow- Roddy McDowell. Roddy McDowell. Roddy McDowell. Robert Morley. Yes. Klinger. 
kind of Jamie Farr's <laughs> a little piece in there. So yeah, so they 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 uh, shook the trees to get the cast in this one. Yeah. And so what they, I appreciated about this is that I I remember seeing uh, films that were billed as cast of thousands and has all these famous people, but it all is just like this like this pablum, this like oatmeal mix of just cameo. In this case, the, each of these people really delivers, really has something of substance to offer to this film, and I. Loved it. And on that <laughs> note, uh, let us remind all of ourselves and everyone listening that this is not easily uh, arrived at. To become a perfect film, you must first pass a very strict and stringent set of rules. And gentlemen, those rules are. Well, sometimes uh, the emphasis here is really valid, especially in this movie, because the love long creates the world that it exists in. And it wholly sustains that world. Regardless of changes in society, the love long retains its meaning and entertainment value. And the loved one will never be placed in any kind of preferential or numerical order it is perfect within its own scale and boy what a scale it is big scaly old thing george and i have loved this movie i mean we loved it in college you still love it and i appreciate this movie more and more all the time because it is so different it is and it's one of those that it sticks in your head it's a it's a stick in the head movie um well that didn't sound right uh, <laughs> <laughs> better than a stick in the head but i mean i remember seeing this <laughs> sitting out on the back porch one summer with my mom seeing this movie show up on tele- television and watching every minute of it and just going wow this is awful and a few years back i was in los angeles at uh, one of those crazy crazy uh, cemeteries where they have this these funerals that they they depict in this movie where they, it's for everybody and and all i could think about was this movie when yeah. i was there <laughs> it's just terrible when you're afflicted with you know moviedom and that's all you think about that's whenever right. you, you know, everything becomes compared everything to is movie, compared to a movie <laughs> it really is remarkable it was made is in, an impression made in 65 but mm-hmm. it, it could have been color right they could have, could color, have done yeah. color sure. but they chose this black and white which was perfect and jonathan winters is just the, the most handsome dog in this movie he's got his pompadour and he plays two parts plays two, two brothers Others. Yeah, and, and one is he's very much taking off on Orson Welles, I think. That's just personal opinion. But the other one is, is he's, he's scheming, of course. All right, he's time. a scheming studio guy. St- studio hack, actually. I mean, he loses his job and, you know, does whatever he can. Yeah, in the beginning of this movie, uh, one of the cool things, and you don't realize it now because of air travel is so fluent, is, you know, the TWA Boeing 707 is coming in from England, and this is 1965. Remember, 10 years before that, there's no way they could have gotten an airplane across the pond. I mean, when well, they could have, but it wasn't with frequency. And here's right. this TW, this magnificent... Even 10 years before, is that right? Well, uh, that's 65 and 55. They were just, in six, in the early 60s, they were doing, they are starting to do coast-to-coast 3,000-mile flights. But the 707 that you see there is the airplane that changed the world in mm-hmm. that respect. And you see that, and that's what they're talking about. They're bringing this guy from England, and he's reading this poem about angels and coming into Los Angeles where 20,000 people check in a day, probably more than that now. And then he talks about the certitude of death. And then you're often running to the races yep. in this movie. It's excellent in every way. Um, there is a lot going on here, so it would take us probably real-time analysis to just describe it all. But I'm going to do a, a super, super compressed story here, just so you get an idea of it, and then we'll just talk about all the crazy things. The main story concerns uh, Robert Morris's character, Dennis Barlow, who's English. He's a poet of sorts. And he wins a contest and gets to come over to the United States to visit his uncle who works in the movies. And he's, he doesn't have a job. He, he's kind of a bum. Um, he tells the immigration officer that he's an AID, an artificial insemination donor. That's his job. Uh, and also a poet. So he oh, gets. He, oh, and also a also poet. A poet yes. He's telling James Coburn. Yeah, James this. Coburn does a little cameo. As agent. A, so he gets out to, the ho- uh, to Hollywood and he meets his uncle, who's played by Sir John Gielgud. 
and his uncle has worked in the studio since the earliest days. And and he invites him, he invites Barlow to stay with him. Well, they're trying to do some, you know, they're looking for new things to do with the studio, and the uncle ends up getting canned because he's just not, you know, he's he's not part of the gang anymore, and the uncle commits suicide. And Barlow is stuck with having to deal with uh, you know, putting his uncle to rest. The funeral arrangements. Right. So he goes to this big funeral home called Whispering Glades. <laughs> and Whispering Glades is basically a rather rude takeoff on a, the big uh, forest lawn uh, funeral home, which is out in Los Angeles. Been there for many years. And one of the greatest parts is, is, is him going through the different departments to arrange his uncle's funeral with this sort of bemusement of how bizarre this whole situation becomes so many questions and so many and it's and, all you get the feeling it's all a, a, an excuse to upcharge yeah more 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 and one more of the, it's all very theatrical one of the mo- most notable moments here and we have a little sound piece is uh, he meets with counsel starker who is played by the great liberace who is helping with uh, clothing arrangements for the uncle yeah that would be lee liberace not george liberace. not george liberace <laughs> the liberace the. check it out now then in addition your emperor model features not a rayon or crepe interior, but an all-silk interior. Tell me, Mr. Barlow, was your uncle a sensitive person? Yes, I, I, I suppose he was. Rayon chafes, you know. Personally, I find it really quite abrasive. Well, then I, I think that I'll take the uh, emperor, emperor model. Wonderful, Mr. Barlow, wonderful. Now then, Mr. Barlow, have you given any thought to exterior designations? I can give you our eternal flame in either perpetual eternal or standard eternal. Uh, well, what is the difference, actually? Well, with standard eternal, your flame burns only during visiting hours. It is shut down at night. With your perpetual eternal, your flame is in service 24 hours a day. Well, I think the... Uh... Perpetual eternal, uh, wouldn't you? Oh, yes. Yes. Propane or butane, Mr. Barlow. Uh, what? Propane burns bluer. Oh, well, uh, uh, nicer, I think. <laughs> Don't you? Huh? Definitely. Oh. <laughs> marvelous. Simply marvelous, Mr. Barlow. Now we'll just go along into fittings. Yeah, don't get a attached to the concept of eternity in this show, whatever you do. Um, <laughs> but Barlow falls for the, the little little lady voice that you heard there was Miss Thanatogenous. What a name. Does that the, mean something? It means she shows her panty lines all the way <laughs> Like anything else in this thing, I'm sure, it, I believe it has something to do with death. I know it does. Uh, Terry Southern, who, who was one of the screenwriters, loves these names. Yeah. Uh, Dane Andrews in this film, he plays General Buck Brinkman. From the U.S. Air Force, but uh, Barlow falls for her really hard. But but now that Barlow, you know, but Barlow gets his uncle buried and has no money, has no way to get back to the U.K., has to get himself a job. He gets a job at a pet cemetery. Yeah, happier hunting ground. Happier hunting ground, where actually one of the Jonathan Winters characters ends up working because he gets canned from the studio also. And it turns out that the happy hunting grounds is a subdivision of Whispering Glades. But not everybody at Whispering Glades knows, knows about it. And he's been, you know, and they're not supposed to talk about it. So they're working at this this hunting ground. And, and Barlow is, you know, talking to the girl and writing her poems, which he's actually stealing from other people. Uh, the girl is writing to this guru Brahmin for, for, um, for advice. But he's this old drunk newspaper man played by Lionel Stander, who gives her just <laughs> the most horrible advice. And, and the whole thing is a metaphor... <laughs> 
for <laughs> a higher being. And she is, you know, always asking for advice from this higher being who looks like this guru. <laughs> and you find out they're just a couple of drunk. A couple of drunk newspaper guys. Tabloid. Like, like Miss Manners turns Bernie. out to be. Yeah. It's just, they're just up there just tossing. And they're obviously bored and they use her for entertainment. And she's you know, more or less praying to them for guidance. You know, she's very earnest, and young lady. Avatar people. Uh, the last character I really want to talk about before we get into talking about the movie is is Rod Steiger's Mr. Joy Boy, probably one of the best characters he has ever played. And Mr. Joy Boy is in charge of makeup at uh, Whispering Glades. He makes up the faces of the, of the loved position? ones. does he position? I got the He feeling... also positions their faces and, and, you know. He's like the master artist. Yeah. Yeah. He's like and, this master, you know, all he has to do is think it and it's fine. It's right. And he plays this <laughs> as, as an extremely effeminate character yes. who lives with his mother who who is this actress Aileen Gibbons who who actually weighed 420 pounds. The, Mama the, Joy Boy. And what a creepy character and how beautifully done. Yes. Oh. One of the most frightening scenes oh. of the whole movie is dinner at Just all. when you think that the juxtapositions in this movie are totally out of control, then they go to the Joy Boy. <laughs> right. And it gets even better. They, they end up Joy back there Boy. and she's falling into the refrigerator with food and she's laying down <laughs> there. Now, it's now, just now. it's almost yeah. impossible to describe. It's so visceral. You have to see it. The um the, the basic crux of the second half of the film basically is Miss Thanatogenous being pulled three different ways by Joy Boy, by Dennis Barlow, and then by the Blessed Reverend, who turns out also has the hots for her. And she just can't Poor dear. she just can't take it anymore and she basically steps out of the picture in a rather interesting in fashion. Her own very unique And the and the master, the the person who is the higher being is Jonathan Winters, who's this incredible huge chairman of the board in stature. And anything he's the says, blessed reverend. And he's always hovering in a black helicopter. Black helicopter with this really scary organ music playing. And and the <laughs> the absurdity of this whole film just keeps outrunning itself. If I, I mean, if there's ever a film that the absurdity outruns itself, it's this film. And and what happens is that he started this Whispering Glades because he knows there's a lot of money in burying people. And then the, the thing's going to get full of people. And so he's got to figure out how to keep to his up. business going because right. he's like one of these crazy moguls in Hollywood that thinks they're going to live forever. And there's this, this wonderful board meeting that we have here as a clip. And you're going to see uh, one of George's favorite lines in oh, this my. movie. When I first met George, he was still he was quoting this line. I still do. It's, it's a great line. We'll... According to our projection at the present rate of burial... The total remaining acreage will be depleted in seven years' time. Whispering Glades as an operational enterprise will then cease to exist. The most feasible possibility, which has yet been suggested, is to convert this acreage into a retirement city, a haven for our senior citizens. Haggerty, the views. Now, gentlemen, These are the views, gentlemen, of some of our more successful retirement communities. Here you see the Shangri Lodge Tropicana and our senior citizens at play. The annual net has been placed at some 25,000 per acre with the distinct advantage of not depleting itself since the turnover among retirement city clientele is uh, <clears throat> fairly brisk. <laughs> Suffice it to say that our overall projection figures indicate a 12,000% gain in the immediate conversion of this acreage into a retirement city, a haven for our senior citizens. Okay, kill it. Well, gentlemen, any comment? 
You're not thinking about disinterment. Surely that is out of the question, Wilbur. After all, it's consecrated ground. There's got to be a way to get those stiffs off my property. <laughs> and it a just movie. gets better after this. A the movie, movie to offend everyone. Better. And they go in. This is 1965, so they were sending up Gemini uh, spacecraft. NASA was. Right. And so they it was were the time. Yeah. That's how they get the, the great idea to save Whispering Glades is this idea. As the, as the Blessed Reverend called it, resurrection now. <laughs> and then basically it's the idea of taking the dead and shooting them into space with rockets. <laughs> Which actually is so not simple. <laughs> it's not in the, that's not in the original book. That's a total Terry Southern thing because the, I believe the the book was written in the forties. Speaking then, of know, Terry we, Southern, I want to mention that I was watching this and I kept thinking this has a feel like Doctor Strangelove. It feels that same way. And then you tell me he wrote uh, Doctor Strangelove. So I mean, and it's I mean, it's not all him. I mean, it was a collaborative effort, right. but there's definite overtones of the of the just complete absurdity. There's a certain just barely contained absurdity in this that is really appealing it's, 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 it really only, is a movie of the time and it's not only the absurdity but it's the fact that these people can do these absurd things and talk about these absurd things and do it very seriously this is not i mean this is not a wacky comedy no everyone plays their here. parts very very straight but uh yeah it's, it's you it's get insane. a little feeling of a mad 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 world because of jonathan winters there's a little bit mm -hmm. of that tone in there but you know we talk about rod steiger who's great but we can't really overlook the genius of Jonathan Winters. He's from oh, no. Dayton, Ohio. A Dayton boy. Uh, and he worked at the department store Reichs. And then he <laughs> went out there and he's just one of the greatest actors that has ever lived. And you see how, I mean, you always talk about these serious actors and how great they are, like Rod Steiger. But look at Jonathan Winters, man. Look at him and right. show you how it's done. Well, here. and in this film, he plays, like I said, he plays the Glenworthy brothers. And Harry Glenworthy, who works for the studio, is a heel. He'll do anything for a buck. You know, he'll, he he hates the idea of working at the Pet cemetery, but he's got to eat. So he gets into the spirit of things, you know. You see him in the office, and they're... Uh, <laughs> You know, they're, they're, they're keeping the, the dead dogs in the refrigerator until they can get uh, around yeah, the Yeah, there's a great gag where he walks. Oh, he's awful. got the dog on a stick, <laughs> yeah. and he tries to walk through the door, and he can't because he gets yeah. hung up. <laughs> but but, <laughs> the, but on the gag, flip side, you know, playing funny, playing gag. the blessed Reverend mm. Wilbur Glenworthy, Wilbur Glenworthy is totally dark character, completely sinister, uh, a sexual bandit later on, you know. And, and never of, before will yeah. you find a movie where they they just oppose sex with death more than this movie. Right. Including a, these yeah. crazy statues they see, and they're almost pornographic when you're walking through this. You see all these crazy statues. He, and you know, and then he goes over and he, he kisses one of them. Kisses, kisses, mm -hmm. yeah, kisses the, the naked yeah, bosom. Yeah, Barlow kills, um, uh, kisses the breast of one of the statues. Yeah. One, of the, one of the really cool things about this movie is you, you see the English influence on Hollywood right up front because the illustrator, an illustrator, is involved in planning a movie. And that's the way it used to be in the old days. I guess they would bring in an illustrator who would you know, immediately paint all the big paint scenes. And, and, scenes and, and he's like involved in, in, the, in the making of this. And he's the reason why his nephew comes in and he's the and reason. The Sir Gilgood, uh, Gilgood yeah. character, Gilgood, and he hangs who kills himself because he's no the more loved room one. for him. And, and the absurdity of his career just kind of floats right into the movie and just, just kind of seats itself through every scene in this picture, which gets more bizarre. Even uh, 50 years later, this movie is just as bizarre as it could ever possibly be. Bizarre and wonderful. We're talking about the loved ones, uh, a 1965. 
uh, movie that was billed as something to offend everyone, and it's it's all there, but it, it, somehow it's uh, it's delightfully well, offensive. And they even managed to get the the military involved in that. Um, at the end, when they're trying, they're going to do this resurrection now thing. They have to find <laughs> the first candidate, and there is a, an astronaut, a dead astronaut at Whispering Glaives called the Condor, <laughs> and his astronaut Todd Blodgett. <laughs> So they have to go out. They have to get permission from the Air Force, and they have to get permission from his widow, who's to a dis- stripper, to disinter him, and uh, and you know to put him in the rocket. And of course, to to uh, they bring in uh, General Buck Brinkman, who is Dana Andrews, <laughs> and they have this meeting at Whispering Glades. It turns into an orgy in the coffin room with all the with all the uh, officers. And then they go to see Mrs. Blodgett, who is a stripper, and she basically tells him, you know, the reason he's dead is because he was drunk and he fell and he hit his head on the sink, I think is what it was. And Dana <laughs> Andrews was a huge studio actor in the 40s and 50s, uh, The Best Years of Our Lives, I believe. Mm-hmm. That Best was Years one of, of the Lives. And then at this point in Curse his career, he's doing movies like Hot Rods to Hell, mm-hmm. which is 1967, <laughs> a couple years later. But in this movie, you can see where this serious actor actually plays a pretty good you know, scary general like in Dr. Strangelove. But then you'll see him two years later and he just struggles through this classic movie, Hot Rods to Hell. Um, I mean, he just claws his way through it. And then... Even Dane Andrews had to eat regular. <laughs> but in this in this movie, it's Dane Andrews in another light, another way of, of exhibiting his knowledge as an actor and his paralysis as an actor. And he does it great in this picture. Like everybody. I don't know. And Paul Williams, the famous songwriter. Um, yeah. Just another old-fashioned love song. I think he mm-hmm. wrote that tune. Am yes, I right? No, I believe so. Love song. And he was 23. I saw mm-hmm. somewhere. 23. In, at the time that he played in this movie, he played a 13-year-old. He's always had, I don't know what, but he's always looked very small, diminutive, much younger than... Um, but he does a great job. As a sort of mad scientist rocket boy. Yeah, he kind of gets involved uh, with the sort of the Resurrection Now thing by, by shooting one of his rockets through the... Uh, through like the crematorium of the pet cemetery, <laughs> and and they that's where they get the idea they're going to shoot like pet remains up into space using little rockets. Oh, and that's right. That's where the Blessed Reverend got got the idea, wasn't it? Or mm-hmm. there was a connection there. Um, and then when Anjanette Comer is shown through the poet that what they're doing is all fake and they're just going to dig up these people and start a new cycle of business. She decides that she likes the artificial world she was living in, where she was going to be the first female embalmer, embalmer uh, in the history of whatever you know their history is. And <laughs> then she finds out that it's all a disappointment because everything that she's been told and she believes in it's a lie. It's everything a lie. And then everyone, she yeah. she goes in and kills herself. That's such a and, and like a very much like like a Robert I mean, Altman we, scene years later. But you say it, it kind of reminds me of Mash. You know when they were doing that um this this movie got its fingers in a lot of people's heads and miss sanitogenous has probably one of the most amazing death scenes in any movie uh i don't know one other movie that does this where she actually embalms herself herself. and and then that lasts for a few seconds and when you're not so torn up about that uh you know you find out like a minute later they're trying to figure out what to do with her and they got all sorts of right the movie immediately turns you know takes this (laughs) sad moment turns it on its head (laughs) (laughs) you're kind of you don't even have time to weep for her and they're sitting there and they're the guys that loved her both of them have figured out how to exchange her for 
a bigger plan. Right. So basically, yeah, basically they take the con the condor and bury him and get rid of that body or burn him and then they put uh, Miss Sanitages in a rocket and shoot her into outer space. So she'll orbit the earth forever. And the crime of the century is when you go to funerals you're going to think about this movie. <laughs> Honestly. Uh, by the way, the Mark Twain absolutely despised the funeral industry for exactly the reasons that this is a blown up caricature cartoon example of that it's all about well, you would want your loved one to have only the best, and this. Is, so, of course, you're going to want the silk lined and not the chafing polyester mm-hmm. and the extra eternal blue flame and all this. He just, he just thought it was a horrible racket to take advantage of people at this horrible time. Well, it, and I can even think in, in the news lately, in the, in the past couple of years, even in Dayton, there have been stories of funeral parlors that have like taken bodies and stacked them in old uh, uh, hearses and just kind of left them left them to rot, basically, and taking the family's money, mm-hmm. you know. And, and then, well, there was that big cemetery down in the south where, you know, people were getting ashes <gasps> and it turned out to be concrete, you know, yeah. and it's just awful. And the Jonathan Winters, uh, the big entrepreneurial character, has, all he can see is there's nothing but space and plenty of places to put his stuff so right. he can start <laughs> out. And the people that are the board members that are talking about the senior citizens' home are are old. Yeah, and they're all enthused about this. And it, <laughs> that wow, would be a nice place to go Very stay. cynical, cynical look at life. Um, it's a great movie. I, I completely enjoyed it. I didn't expect, I mean, I know we had talked about it, and you, both of you just said, wait till you see it. Wait till you see it. But I had okay. seen some stills and some pictures, but wasn't what I expected. I was completely delighted. And I also am pleased that it's in black and white. I just... Mm-hmm. And I don't, I've never read exactly the decision with that. I mean, there still were a lot of black and white films at this time. Um, it may have had something to do with Haskell Wexler, who shot it. And he was a producer on this picture. Yeah. And Haskell West- was, is the most unusual director of photography in the business because he has such a hands-on grip of his his pictures. Right. He well, not plus, only- the, the, in this film, the lights they used to light the scenes were Haskell. Haskell brought his own lights. To shoot the film. He's like huh. a legendary uh, director of photography. Uh, and, and when I got in the business, that's all people talked about was Haskell because a lot of my friends have worked with Haskell. And Haskell was, is just one of these innovative DPs. I mean, not too many DPs produce movies. Right. And this film has such an unusual look. There's an incredible use of a wide-angle lens that just, just helps distort and kind of add to the sheer strangeness of the entire place. Well, they read in there somewhere that um, they were having a hard time with some shadows. They needed to have long oh, yes. ones. <laughs> they were shooting a lot of the daylight stuff. They were shooting at noon. And Haskell Wexler was upset because he couldn't get the shadows to show the depth he wanted. He wanted so he had lengthy. the crew paint shadows on the grass for the trees. <laughs> it's brilliant. And if you, too, I didn't notice it. I had, it was only after I pointed out. But the, it, it's true. The tree shadow goes go one way, and the people's shadow goes just a little different. different if you were paying close attention, you would have recognized that. But very effective. <laughs> Amazing. But just, and it just adds to the weirdness of the whole thing. <laughs> it really it's very English. It, you, you can watch a Monty Python show and watch this one right after. And yeah, you, Let's say a little bit of the same resonance. Kind of summer, don't you think, George? Is yeah, there. very much. The same yeah. Terry Southern. The ballsy English comedy. Oh, rather. Like a, a different aspect of the British invasion. And there are many, 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 many English actors. And also, one final little factor that's kind of fun to know, the lead... Uh, the lead actor, the lead part. Oh, Robert Morse is not. He's, he's American. There's a white. There's there's a lot of uh, English people in the movie business, United States motion picture industry, and they they do a pretty good job in the '60s of showing you know how their influence on the on the business. But apparently, he had such a difficult time mastering the English accent that he had to go back and loop every 
Yeah, everything single on this, line. Every, every single line. Everything on this show is very even sounding when you sit there and yeah. watch it. Indeed. And what I would like to recommend, something I found, which is probably really hard to find, there is actually a book called The Journal of the Loved One that was written by Terry Southern. Uh, if you can find it, it's a whole book about the making of the film. Lots of great pictures, great including pictures. some scenes that, that got altered later on. There are things in this movie that got altered because it was too offensive for a lot of people. Hardly so, any of these books exist, but George will sell you his for like $100,000. million. You can write to the Film Guys and claim your copy. Film Guys at PerfectMovie.net. So if you get tired of looking for it, just call George and he'll sell it to you for, you know. Yeah, right. <laughs> you can uh, find... I'll let you look at it for a buck. Links to everything we do at WYSO.org. Go straight to the source at perfectmovie.net. J. Todd Anderson, always a pleasure. Thank you for being here today. It's always my pleasure, Nikki. See you go to George Williman, there's no one quite like you, and please come back and be you again. Yes, rest in pieces. <laughs> Thanks, boys. Next time. Thank you for listening to an archival episode of Filmically Perfect. Please keep an ear out for new episodes of Filmically Perfect, coming very soon to iTunes and hosted on our website, www.perfectmovie.net. See you, please.